Good morning, Jillian, and welcome to the Local Paleo Show. Good morning, LA. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Good morning, Mark. How is everybody this morning? Extremely cold. Cold? It's, <laughs> it it's is not... minus 31 degrees centigrade where I am today. Wow. Where are you now? In Ottawa, Canada. Oh, wow. Uh, well, it's only about 70 degrees here in Texas, plus, <laughs> plus 70, not minus. That's not too bad. No, no, but it is, it is uh, rainy and uh, kind of ugly out there. <clears throat> okay, Jillian, <laughs> and I was not talking about myself. Thank you very okay. much. All right. Uh, like they say here in, te in Texas, um, no comments from the peanut gallery. <laughs> okay. The peanut gallery will be quiet. All right. Jillian, uh, our common friend, Jade Nelson, suggested we talk to you, and here you are. Thank you for coming on our show. And uh, you are a health policy and promotion consultant. You use a ketogenic diet to control your own epileptic seizures. seizures I'm sorry. And... Um, I guess we'll start with your background. What is your professional background and what brought you where you are now? Well, actually, I've spent the last 25 years or so in um, obstetrics and maternal and newborn care and working with families who um, have a lot of barriers to health. So certainly I did have a background in health before my own epilepsy reared its ugly head again, uh, which was about four and a half years ago. I did have epilepsy as a child, but it came back with a vengeance when I turned 44. And I can probably thank perimenopause for that. But as a result, um, I really struggled. I, I had a, a really horrible time for three to four months, but I'm a very analytical person and I decided that I needed to tackle it head on and and from in a very scientific way and in fact it was that that has brought me seizure freedom um now you've had epilepsy since you were young um I'm, I'm, i have no knowledge of this particular um affliction uh, how does it happen what um what is the source? How, how, I mean, I have no idea. How does it start and uh, how does one deal with it? The thing about epilepsy is it's, it's a bit like cancer in the sense that there are many, many, many different types of diagnoses. And sometimes epilepsy can happen as a result of a traumatic brain injury. Sometimes it can happen as a result of a, a genetic disorder. And in my particular case, there, there's no known etiology. And that's, in fact, the case for most people who have epilepsy. So for me, my epilepsy manifested uh, in early childhood as absent seizures. So I would lock on to a focal point and, and I would no longer be able to engage with my environment. And my mother, who actually was a pediatric nurse who was trained at Great Ormond Street, um, she noticed these and said something's wrong. And she went to my local doctor and he said, yes, I agree, something's wrong. And they sent me to the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, which at the time, and still is, in fact, a, a world-renowned hospital. Unfortunately, um, the, the person, the neurologist who saw me, 
said that there's no way I could have epilepsy because I wasn't losing control of my bladder or my bowels, which of course is not <laughs> a prerequisite for an epileptic mm -hmm. seizure. However, as a result of that, he referred me to psychiatry for the next two years. And so I had lovely conversations about Freudian dream analysis from the time I was 11 to the time I was 13. But of course, we got nowhere because I did not have an issue with that. I had a neurological issue. So in fact, it wasn't until I was 14 and um, moved in next to a very well-known local neurologist. And my mother basically grabbed him at a dinner party and said, hey, can you see my daughter? And he did. And within a few weeks and a bunch of, you know, um, neurological assessments, he had diagnosed me with left temporal lobe epilepsy. And at that time, he put me on medication. And the medication uh, did work. I had one, one very massive seizure. And then after that, I was seizure free for a period of time. But the side effects of the medication were not at all um, what I had anticipated. They were, I had a lot of issues with liver function. And remember, I was 14, so quite young, and it damaged my memory very, very badly. So I was struggling to, um, I was really struggling to manage in school. And I was fairly bright and was looking forward to going to university, but certainly I had absolutely no short-term memory. So my choices around what I was going to pursue in, um, in university changed. I had wanted to do medicine. There was just absolutely no chance that was going to happen while I was taking medication. So when I did get to university at 18, um, I did a stupid thing. Can we, can we back up a little bit? Because yes, um, I think it's important um, to explain to those of us that are not familiar with what, what are the symptoms and how would you decrease would you uh, explain it as a misfiring of the brain? How do you explain the, the particular um, issue you're dealing with? Well, it's important that people understand that every single person has a seizure threshold. And in fact, the statistics say that one in 10 people in their life will have a seizure and one in 100 people will be diagnosed with epilepsy. So. For my particular case, I have a lesion in my left temporal lobe, and that does cause some wiring issues. And so my seizure threshold is lower than that of many people. So I have specific seizure triggers. Um, stress can be a seizure trigger. Sleep de deprivation can be a seizure trigger. Um, flashing lights can be a seizure trigger. Hyperventilation can trigger seizures. There are lots of different things, and different people have different um, you know, different triggers for them. But in my particular case, there are, there is wiring in my brain that is abnormal. And when an epilepsy is done, you can see that I have surges that are higher than perhaps, you know, your brain may have. And when those surges breach a specific point, I have a seizure. And my particular seizures um, are, they become more generalized. They were local, what they call focal seizures early on. So as I mentioned, I would, you know, my focus is locked. I can't interact with my environment, but I can still hear what's happening. Some people having seizures can't hear what's going on. They're completely disconnected from their environment. Um, however, as my seizures progressed, they became more tonic-clonic. I would have, you know, um, more muscle involvement, more twitching, uh, a lot of salivating, um, a lot of lip smacking. And in fact, I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast just to spend 10 minutes and Google 
what does a seizure look like? Because there are so many, many, many of my friends and, and peers in the epilepsy community have actually been taken to the police station because yeah. their behavior is very unusual. And many people think that they're either suffering from a drug overdose or, you know, an alcohol overdose or that they have significant mental health issues when actually they're seizing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think it would be really great for people just to understand that the range of seizures is as diverse as the range of seizure disorders. Right. Um, so in your case, there was a, a, a physical trauma that happened to you. Is that right? Do you remember what that was? That's or? what we think. We're not, we're not sure. Nobody's ever categorically said this is what caused your epilepsy. But at the time of my delivery, I was my mother's third child, so she had a pretty good idea what she was doing mm-hmm. when she had me. And she uh, went to the hospital and um, said to the nurse, I'm going to have this baby. And the nurse said, no, you're not, dear. Here's some Demerol. Go to sleep. Now, mm-hmm. what she did not tell my mother is that the doctor was golfing that day and had said, please don't disturb me unless anything was happening. And she didn't take my mother seriously. So my mother delivered me without anyone around, under the covers, with no support. And it was my father who went running out into the hallway saying, well, she says the baby's here. And the nurse came in and pulled the covers back. And there I was, face down. So I had been born. I had taken my first breath. And then I had stopped breathing. And they were able to resuscitate me quite quickly. But there is a theory that perhaps that initial oxygen deprivation at delivery caused mm. my left temporal lobe lesion. Mm. Wow. Wow. All of that because of lazy, um, lazy surgeon. Well, it was uh, a lazy nurse, really. Okay. And a nurse who didn't follow her, the uh, sort of, how can I put that? Common sense rules. Yeah. Indeed. So it's well, not, it's not a case like the joke goes there where someone dropped you when you were a baby. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, so that would be one reason, uh, which obviously very, um, I mean, you know, the world would have uh, had a big loss with, with you not being there. But um, what are the typical reasons for uh, epilepsy to happen? Do you know? Certainly birth trauma is one. Um, traumatic brain injury is a very big one. So concussions, traffic accidents, you know, anything, anyone who gets dropped on their head is going to have a significantly increased risk of, of, uh, of reducing that threshold. Um, <clears throat> oxygen deprivation at any time in life, surgery. So those who've had to have uh, surgery for brain tumor resection, those kinds of things can, can do it. Um, various genetic diseases, uh, you know, GLUT1 deficiencies, those kinds of things can really lead to significant seizure disorders. Um, and so there's, there's such a wide variety. It, it's okay. one of the reasons why it makes it difficult to treat. Right, right. So you suggest I stop smacking myself on the head like this? <laughs> I do, yeah, yeah especially if it's with a two-by-four. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I used to, in my, in my previous um, career, I used to a rolling pin to just, you know, put, <laughs> I don't mean to make fun of it. I just want to do, put a little, a little bit of light into a very serious uh, issue. I don't want to... Um, you know, I, I see you approaching this very uh, pragmatic and very scientific way. I'm trying to make it a little more uh, 
easy to understand for all. Uh, so what else would you, so yeah, one thing, there's different degrees of seizures, right? Levels. Well, I don't know if I would say levels, but there are different types of seizures. So, okay. you know, some people have absent seizures that others may not actually even perceive, but there's so many of them per day, it can end up being a great deal of time lost out of that day. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then there are others who have extremely visible tonic clonic seizures, which last 15 minutes or so. And, and those are unfortunately the ones that tend to be portrayed in the media, portrayed on television. And, mm -hmm. and that is not the reality for a great number of us. Um, but I don't know that I would say uh, that I would measure it in degrees because they're, they're equally traumatic. And, and um, certainly my seizures tend not to be as tonic-clonic, but my post-ictal phase, so the phase right after I have my seizure, is really nasty. I, I feel terrible. I feel very nauseated, and I tend to have to sleep for many, many hours in order to recover from a seizure. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, there's a term we use in France, and um, um, I'm sure it's related. What is grand mal seizure? Mm-hmm. mal seizures are uh, sort of the older terminology for, for what we call a generalized seizure. So seizures that are sort of taking place in multiple parts of the brain. And they tend to um, also mean that people are not aware during their seizures. And they tend to also be more tonic-clonic seizures, as opposed to the petit mal, which are what people used to call focal seizures or absent seizures. So we've just, we've changed the terminology a little bit. And to be honest, they're still changing the terminology. So right. um, they're, they're tending to move more towards focal and generalized. Focal tend to be in one part of the brain. Generalized tends to spread across the brain. Right, right. Yeah, the term sounds a little bit medieval. It is. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, one thing I heard, and, you know, of course, you're the expert, uh, what is this uh, thing that we should, uh, when someone has an attack, a seizure, that we this, we need to pull their tongue out or put something between their teeth so they don't swallow their own tongue? Is that is I'm that glad correct? you brought that up. No, it is absolutely not. Um, another really great thing for people to Google is seizure first aid because there are so many people who will experience a seizure. Chances are that you have people you work with who have epilepsy. It's important to know basic seizure first aid. The first and most important thing is to make sure the person having a seizure is safe so that they are away from anything that can harm them. They're not near, you know, power, you know, power lines. They're not near um, furniture where they could hurt themselves and to sort of guard them but absolutely never put anything in a person's mouth who's having a seizure, never try and do anything with their tongue, never. Uh, that, that's just going to get you bitten and it's going to get, you know, and it's going to really annoy the person who's having a seizure and potentially be dangerous for them. So mm -hmm. the rule of thumb is guard their space, make sure that they are, are protected from the environment, leave them be, and if the seizure lasts longer than 15 minutes, call the emergency medical services. And for many people who have never experienced witnessing a, a seizure, it's extremely frightening sometimes. And yes. it's never wrong to call EMS. So if you're really uncomfortable with what you're witnessing and it's only been five minutes, by all means, call an ambulance. 
And by the time that ambulance comes and that person regains consciousness, if they say, look, it's okay, I had a seizure, I'm all right, I don't need to be taken to hospital, then that's okay. But if it's the first time this person's ever had a seizure, they should absolutely be taken to hospital. So it's never wrong to call EMS early, but generally if it's a person you know who has epilepsy, it's a person who you know, has a history, anything longer than 15 minutes definitely needs to, you know, to be managed by professionals. Now, I have observed one once, remember, in the kitchen where I was working at, and uh, it's quite scary. Uh, we mm -hmm. don't know what to do, and the person was on the ground and was, um, you know, shaking violently and mm -hmm. uh, eyes rolled back up. Um, uh, when they are on the ground, is there, like, maybe put something under the head? Is there something to keep them from hurting themselves or any other situation? Besides. If you could put something under their head and safely, that would be wonderful. But for many people seizing, they're moving so much that, that that's really not going to be possible. If you, you know, if you can get a jacket or a coat or, you know, aprons if you're in the kitchen, whatever you've got underneath their head, yes. But that's what I mean by guarding that space, making sure that they're not going to, you know, violently reach out and, and hurt themselves on, you know, on a table leg that's right next door. So move the furniture away, move everything away, give them space and just wait. Hmm. And then they eventually will uh, subside. Mm -hmm. And that's why that 15 minute uh, marker is very important. So somebody should be timing. Oh, okay. All right. So let's move on to talk about diet, since this is one of the methods you use. Um, I have had only one uh, epileptic patient as a nutritionist personally, and I put him on the keto diet. Um, why is the keto diet recommended for epileptic patient? How does it help? Well, I love the way you phrase that, Elaine, because the keto diet is not recommended for adult epilepsy patients nearly enough. So historically, the ketogenic diet has been um, used for, for children, and it's been quite effective. In fact, 50% of people who try the diet have a 50% or better reduction in seizures, which is actually better than any anti-epileptic drug on the market today. Hmm. So that's important to know. However, when we talk about keto and ketogenic diets, unfortunately, if you talk to 100 different people, that will mean 100 different things. So when we're talking about children under the age of two, they respond to a very strict, very, very high fat, 90% high fat diet. That's a four to one ratio. When you're talking about children over the age of two or adults, they actually respond very well to a modified Atkins approach or a slightly lower fat, closer to a 75 to 80% fat ratio. Um, and, and it can be extremely, extremely uh, beneficial. In fact, 25% of people can have complete seizure freedom. And when you think that 3.74 million people in the United States have epilepsy today, 3 million of those are adults, about 47 or 4, 470,000 are children. Um, Right now, in, in Canada, I know, and definitely in the U.S., if you have epilepsy, the first thing that you are, 
are, you know, prescribed or is medication. Um, if medication doesn't work, they prescribe a second medication. And if the second medication doesn't work, it's recommended you, you try surgery. Nowhere on our, uh, on our, you know, um, recommendations in Ontario does it suggest a therapeutic nutritional approach, which I find mind-boggling given that it is so, so incredibly easy. And I do say it is incredibly easy. And, you know, we can pull that apart a little bit in a minute. But um, as somebody who's been doing it for four and a half years and had complete seizure freedom within two weeks of starting the diet, I can tell you that um, my life is immensely better and and nobody gave me that option my neurologist didn't my family physician had never heard of a ketogenic diet they were both supportive of me but I was the one who had to actually discover and then implement I had very very little support and that makes me really sad right let's be let's be honest here and clear the medical system as it stands is not geared toward nutrition the, the typical uh, medical studies include maybe half a day or a day of nutrition in uh, what ten years, practice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, education, um, and so what they're taught is to prescribe drugs yeah. and yeah. or to yeah. do surgery. That's all they know, and uh, you were lucky to find a doctor that was open to the idea. But uh, in some cases, I heard of stories where if uh, if you don't agree with the doctor and you try to do it uh, on your own with diet or summer, you, you could actually be uh, taken away. Like, uh, mm-hmm. or, or let's say you're a parent and you decide to use the keto diet instead of uh, the drugs, then uh, someone could call child services and claim you're abusing the children. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I've, I've spoken with clients who, who have actually had that conversation with child services. And that's, of course, that's a whole different ball game as far Just as... Just as an aside, know, though, Zillian, do um, you get involved so, in advocacy for parents in that type of position? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that, that came about when I, when I first started, I decided I was going to be very meticulous about everything. I, I charted every seizure I had, the date, the time what part of the month it was, whether they were hormonally impacted. And when I started my ketogenic diet, I also took my, and I still do every single day, my, my ketones, my blood monitor every morning, my, my blood glucose every morning, my basal body temperature every morning, every, exactly what I ate. I can pull up a food log for any day in the last five years and tell you exactly what I ate. And so I had it all spelled out and I put it together in a poster presentation that I presented um, at the Global Metabolic Conference in Banff, Alberta uh, in 2014. And it was actually there that I started to meet other families and people said, you know, you should be writing about this. You should be, you should be telling the stories of these other people who are using keto therapeutically. And so I actually started to do that. And, and uh, so I've had a, I've had the wonderful experience of, of speaking with hundreds of people who've used mm. this way of eating therapeutically and, and the amazing stories that they've had are, you know, in, incredible. But again, it, on one level, it makes me excited and happy. And on another level, it makes me sad that, that we don't have this as, um, as a primary intervention for so many things, not just yeah. epilepsy, type two diabetes, you name it. There's so many yeah. out there that can really yeah. benefit. Oh yeah. So, in your opinion, what makes the keto diet 
uh, useful or helpful in this case? What, what particular, uh, we know it's all brain related, so what mm -hmm. does uh, an addition of fat in your diet help? How does it help? And of course, we also have to talk about mm -hmm. the quality of the fat because that's very important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, um, and 100% I agree uh, about the quality piece. I think the bottom line is nobody actually knows what it is about the ketogenic diet or the metabolic shift that takes place when you move from being primarily glucose burning to being primarily fat burning. Nobody really knows where in that cycle or what in that cycle has, has the most profound impact on epilepsy and epileptic activity. But what they are suggesting is that it is much more than just ketones in the blood. It is actually the, the switch into that specific fat-burning metabolic pathway that, that provides other, other factors that really have the impact in the brain. So nobody really knows, but they know that it's a combination of increased ketones, but it is also the process of creating those ketones that seems to be neuroprotective, especially when it comes to seizure activity. So I still have a seizure threshold, but it's just way higher than it ever was before. Just like both of you have a seizure threshold, and I hope you never find out what it is. But, you know, whatever you're doing is, 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 going, to, um, is going to impact that. So I think it's the, it's the actual state of creating ketones more than just the ketones in the bloodstream that impact. And, and I think that's an important message because there's a lot of talk about exogenous ketones these days, those that you can drink or eat that are not made endogenously from within. Mm -hmm. and, and they have a therapeutic role. I'm, I'm sure we're going to see medications based on that in the next 10 years. But what that therapeutic role is, it has yet to really be, you know, fully explored. And certainly I turn to them periodically if I feel that I have made a mistake in my diet or I've eaten something at a restaurant and, I, and my brain is starting to not feel well, I may use exogenous ketones as a rescue, but by no means do I use them on a daily basis. I, I go for my own on a daily basis. Right, right. So talking about the quality of the fat, uh, we, well... Some of us know that the brain is, what, 70% fat? Mm -hmm. About, okay. It so uh, it's extremely important to keep the quality of that fat within our brain healthy and not introduce inflammatory type of fats, which would mm -hmm. be omega-6 in this case. So personally, I focus on omega-3s as much as possible. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, any kind of fish, fish oil, um, you know, anything that would help keep the brain healthy versus the bad fats. So I'll let you take over on the, on those, uh, on those, the difference and, and how it affects the brain. Well, I'm very interested in, um, in, in fat quality, not just from an epilepsy perspective, but actually also from a lipedema perspective. Because there's some new research that's coming out that suggests that large quantities of the polyunsaturated uh, fatty acids can actually just serve to lock adipose tissue up. It can lock fat in the fat cells as opposed to allowing that, that flux. And, and I find that really interesting just because they are so inflammatory. 
and as a person with lipedema, um, in spite of the fact that I've lost over 100 pounds on my ketogenic diet, which was just a pleasant side effect, it really wasn't what I was expecting. And in fact, if you had told me five years ago, hey, I've got a diet for you that's going to help you lose all that weight you've been struggling to get off for the last 30 years, I would have laughed at you. But because I was having seizures, and I really wanted to try and get rid of those, um, you know, I, I just found that the weight did come off. But because I have lipedema, which deposits fat on my thighs and on my hips, that, um, you know, that's harder to come off. But what I'm reading now in the literature is avoiding those PUFAs is incredibly important. So I definitely focus more on avocado oil, you know, walnut oil, um, olive oil, lots of fish. I try and eat fish at least twice a week if I can from the healthiest sources that I can. And it does make me sad when I see reports online of nutritionists in hospitals setting up children, like three-year-olds, um, with canola oil as no, their fat no, no, no. and white bread and white no. rice. Those no, let's, not, let's not get confused. Those are not nutritionists. <laughs> they are dietitians. It's okay. a whole different beast. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, um, they work for the pharmaceuticals. They don't work for the patient. Yes. Well, and they, you know, I would like to think that they that they really do have everybody's best interest in mind, but I think that they just don't understand and they just don't have the knowledge. And that's that's the thing that you guys are working towards, really helping. And and I appreciate so much is making sure people do understand the importance of balancing omega six and omega three. We need omega six. There's no question. It's a you know necessary fatty acid. But we shouldn't have it in these incredibly disproportionate, you know, unbalanced quantities that unfortunately a standard North American diet has really led to. Like, and people, you know, saying, oh, I'm keto, going to McDonald's, don't understand what their McDonald's burger is being fried in, or frankly, what's in it. <laughs> but, it was, you, you know, know, the quality of the fat in the meat as well is horrible. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. Yeah, so it's yeah, we, we, our job here is to try to educate people. So uh, what kind of fat do you recommend for keto diet versus the kind you do not recommend? In general, if we're talking sort of generally across the board, um, I would lean definitely more toward, you know, the avocado, walnut oil, olive oil, fish oils, eating, you know, Cod livers are one of my favorite things, and I know lots of people don't like liver, but I love liver pate. And, mm. you know, healthy, grass-fed, you know, meats, very, very important. They have great mix. I am a huge fan of lard. I've actually just discovered the beauty of pure leaf lard, and I mix it up with hot sauce and use it as dipping sauce. I make mayonnaise out of it, and it's got a lovely balance of saturated and monounsaturated mm. fats. And I get mine locally from um, from a local farm, so I know my pigs. I get to pass them before they go away. Right. <laughs> some of uh, our listeners know that I'm um, I've been anti-GMO for the past you know five six years. So the quality of the fat is also very important. That is, do not eat fat that is coming from traditional farm raised or you know mm -hmm. cattle uh, industrial raised raised animals which are fed genetically engineered corn and soy and alfalfa mm -hmm. that not only they're genetically engineered but they create this omega-6 fatty acid that gets into the meat and when you eat that meat 
you ingest omega-6, which is inflammatory, which is not going to help your brain. So uh, mm -hmm. something needs to be clear about this, the quality of the fat, not just the fat itself. Like you said, if you could, you could either get a, a piece of lard from a, a properly raised pig in a farm living, uh, you know, free, uh, free range and so on and so forth and harvest it, or you can get the same fat from a pig that has been confined in the cage where they can move and they can't, and you know, they basically fatten up with the wrong kind of ingredients, not grass or not, you know, uh, typically pigs love, um, what do you call that? Uh, let's see. How do you say, comment on dit en français le chêne, en anglais, le chêne? Le chêne, c'est quoi? The tree, the tree. Oh, the... Um... Ah, oak, acorns. Oak, okay, acorns. Acorn, so, right. Yeah, uh, pigs in the wild, you know, whether they are uh, raised on the farm or typically they love to eat corn, um, mm -hmm. uh, corns, I'm sorry. And those contain healthy fats as well, omega-3s. They eat grass, they eat bugs, of course. Um, so there's a huge difference in quality between lard coming from the farm-raised, properly-raised animals and the industrial type. So we need to be very clear on that. Mm -hmm. I agree. And there's a saying, and I can't remember who coined it, but you are what the animals you eat are. <laughs> Right. Or you are what the animals you eat eat. So mm. it's not you are what you eat, but you are what the animals you eat eat. Yes. <clears throat> so definitely, um, that is something I've paid a lot more attention to. And and in my own journey, you know, I was saying to Mark just before we got on that I, I couldn't have done this without cheesecake. But uh, it really distresses me now when I look at Instagram pages that are you know keto pages that. 80 or 90% of what I'm looking at are, are, is keto junk food, essentially. Yes. And, and that's very distressing because it misses the point that food is medicine. And what the goal should be is to be fueling your body as efficiently and as, as well as you can possibly afford to do. Mm. And so in the beginning of my journey, I certainly ate more fat bombs and more cheesecake. And now I eat my pasture-raised pig to eat the acorns from my oak trees. <laughs> right, right. So, <laughs> so that, that, uh, this, this, this is a perfect segue into something that pees me to no end, is the, the new fad keto diet, where it used to be the fad was the paleo diet. Now it's the keto diet that's a new fad. It's the, because a lot of people get all caught up in, uh, first of all, because it's a fad, Secondly, they think, oh, my God, this is, you know, I'm, I'm lose weight. You did mention you lost weight on this diet, but there's a huge difference between the fatty, fat, fatty, not fatty uh, <laughs> diet and the therapeutic diet. Can you kind yeah. of explain the, the difference? Absolutely. Well, as I said before, if, if you talk to 100 different people, they're going to give you 100 different definitions of what keto is. Realistically, and for those of us who use it therapeutically, it's very, very rigid in the sense that 
I don't eat more than about 20 grams of total carbohydrates a day. And if you look at what most people are eating on a ketogenic diet, they're calling it 20 to 30 net grams, but that's usually 60 or 70 actual grams of carbohydrate a day. Yeah. So really, when you look in the literature, a low-carb, high-fat diet is under 100 grams of total carbs. Mm-hmm. And a very low-carb diet is considered under 50 grams of total carbs. And a ketogenic diet is considered under 20 grams of total carbs. Very few people practicing a keto diet today are actually eating under 20 grams of total carbohydrates. Yeah. And I agree. It's, it is, I hate to say fatty because the reason it is fatty is that it is working for people, which is great. But what I really would love for people to understand and to drive home this message is that we are designed to be dual fuel burners. We're designed to be metabolically flexible. So getting to be metabolically flexible should be the goal. Not everyone needs to be in a state of ketosis 24-7, 365 days a year. I do, because if I'm not, I'm going to have seizures. People who are dealing with specific types of cancer may also wish to do that. People who are dealing with high risks of Alzheimer's disease may also wish to do that. But everyone else, everyone with the ability to be metabolically flexible should be aiming to be metabolically flexible. And that means balancing out periods of perhaps being in ketosis with periods of not. And they may wish to do that by fasting or they may wish to do that by eating high healthy, you know, high levels of healthy fats and very low levels of carbohydrate for periods of time. But I think um, where it's becoming fatty is where everybody is posting pictures of, oh, look, this is keto. And they're showing pictures of Halo Top ice cream or they're showing pictures of, of, Hershey's whipping cream in a can and I'm like okay stop asking is it keto start asking is it real food and then ask is it good for me because if it is not good for you some people are allergic to avocados guess what avocados aren't good for you (laughs) you know if you're allergic to peanuts then peanuts aren't good for you you have to ask is it real food first and then is it good for me, the individual? If I am metabolically compromised, if I have type 2 diabetes, then I am going to require a different approach than someone who's 25 years old and is reading all this saying, oh, yeah, I want to be metabolically flexible. Mm-hmm. You're already metabolically flexible. <laughs> if you're 25, chances are. So I think that we need to tone down the rhetoric a little bit and, and in the community, I try and be really open-minded because I recognize that for a lot of people, they're dealing with food addictions. They're dealing with um, significant eating disorders. They're dealing with a lifetime of illness and pain and, and issues that have stemmed from being in a very high state of hyperinsulinemia for an extended period of time. And they are going to need, you know, a different approach. And, and if people need cheesecake to get on, then okay, but don't make it every day. Don't, you know, I tell people, pick your celebrations. Is it just your birthday or is it everybody you know's birthday? (laughs) Because that's going to have a different, you know, a different outcome. And I do think that the bottom line is people just have to recognize you are nourishing cells. You need to change from a cellular level in order to be healthy. And it takes time to grow mitochondria and, you, you just really want to be able to put into your body what you want to get out of it. 
And if that's, you know, Hershey's whipping cream in a can and McDonald's, you know, patties with no bun, that's what you're going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really not where most of us are going with this. The reason people right. are excited about keto is because of the health benefits. So then let's at least underscore the importance of healthy, nutritionally dense food. Right. So um, Sorry, keeping, was that a rant? In mind, <laughs> keeping in mind that, you know, 99% of the population, including the medical establishment, doesn't have a clue about the nutrition and the difference between good food that is good healthy food and what they think i mean you know a, a typical example we vegetarian or vegans you know they mm-hmm. for example, and, and i'm yeah. not picking on vegans but it's uh, because i taught vegans for for almost two years and i see so many vegans that think they're eating healthy and yet they're still overweight. Why? Because they eat processed, highly processed mm-hmm. junk food that because does not contain any more, you know, uh, protein. Mm-hmm. Makes it and, you know, eating a bag of chips is technically vegan, but it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. So, the, our job here, Mark and I and you and every guest, to educate people, let them understand the difference between good, healthy food and what they think is good, healthy food. And that's mm-hmm. why we emphasize on the food aspect of things versus uh, medication or any other form. And we try to let people understand the difference between and it's a it's a tough job, and nobody wants to hear it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're addicted. They're addicted to these um, industrial food created to addict them. And and you know, in fact, you know, different uh, different flavorings and adjuvants and you know uh, MSGs and so on and so forth. So the hard part is to try to convince them that yes, you can eat healthy food that is actually tasty and that's where as a chef nutrition that's typically my approach is that my goal is to uh, create programs to teach people not only to eat healthy but to eat good tasty healthy food mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of uh, dietitians to you know to name to name them don't have a clue on how to make healthy food tasty it's just go they approach it from a scientific or whatever approach they use. And when I saw my son in the hospital with a chicken fried steak and, you know, barely defrosted uh, yeah, carrots on the on the plate with jello as a dessert, I about killed the nurse on the spot, right? <laughs> and, and she said, well, I'm sorry, I'm just serving it, you know. It's like what, uh, what the dietitian says, we should feed your son. And... And I say, well, I'm a chef nutritionist, and me and my wife are gonna, we're gonna bring in food that we know is healthy for him and make him mm-hmm. better. But, and this is such a huge, a huge gap of knowledge in the medical establishment. This obviously makes me uh, emotional about it. But our job is to help people understand that there is a healthy way to eat, and that, in this particular case, will help tremendously. I agree. Can you, can you speak to that? Well, 
in terms of the, you know, the vegan and vegetarian, or for that matter, carnivore approach, I think what's important for people to really, to really do is to ask the tough questions. So the first question should be, why do you eat what you eat? Do you do that for ethical reasons? Do you do that because you feel good? Because there are some vegans out there who can get through their whole long life feeling great because they have the genetic ability to do that. But that is not the majority. And what happens with many, including my own niece, is that they become incredibly sick. Their liver enzymes go off. Her doctor called her and said, we think you may have cancer. You need to come in for a full workup. When in fact, she was vegan with an MTHFR mutation that made her not able to actually make any B12 at all. (laughs) And she was taking it supplementally, but not good. The minute she started eating meat again and cutting out all the legumes from her diet, all of her blood work came back to within normal levels and in fact optimal levels because what we see as normal are in fact often not optimal. And, and she became well again. And I, I really encourage people to, to really look at that. Get your blood work done and ask yourself, is what you are putting in your body actually working towards your long-term health or not? If you are systemically inflamed because you are eating nothing but chips and Pepsi because you have an ethical you know, uh, argument against eating meat, if that's your choice. People can choose to do that. You can absolutely choose to live on chips and Pepsi and die an early death. That is a choice. And as long as we are respectful of people's informed choice, I have no problem with that. Where I have the problem is the informed piece. And that's what we are all struggling to do is inform people that no matter how you choose to eat, animals are involved. All those vegetables that you're eating have to be grown in soil that is enriched usually with bone meal from, guess what, animals or blood meal from animals. Animals are part of the life cycle no matter what you choose to put in your mouth. But it's about each individual's um, particular needs to be ideally healthy. And for some people, that means very little in the way of plant material. And for others, it means moderate intake of, of, you know, uh, animal-based proteins and a balanced plant approach. And for other people, they're going to actually be okay as vegans. But the majority of us, I mean, when, when you look at the nutritional breakdown between, you know, meat and vegetables, there's... There's no getting around it. Meat wins every single time. And, and it's just so nutritionally dense. Where it comes down to how much meat we should be eating, I think that's also, you know, probably a, a whole nother hour of conversation. Right. Uh, but certainly I can tell you, I, I power lift three times a week. And I've been doing this for two years and I rarely miss a day. So I, I have some muscles going on. But <laughs> I don't eat a whole lot of, of protein. I eat about usually between 60 and 80 grams of protein a day, which, you know, for a five foot seven woman who powerless, you know, most people would agree would be on the very moderate side. And I gain muscle and I do well. To go back a little bit, how did you convince your niece to switch? Because that must have been a hard, uh, hard, uh, tough discussion. To be honest, I don't think it was me. I think uh, I was trying to convince her for the several weeks leading up to the phone call she got from the doctor saying, we think you might have cancer. And I think that pretty much did it. (laughs) And then 
she also she's she's very physically active. She she's a boxer, in fact, and she's planning on joining the Canadian military. And she figured that she was probably going to need a slightly different nutritional approach in order to have the power and the strength that she was going to need to be able to do that job. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, moving on. Uh, <clears throat> you mentioned biohacking in your story. Can first can you explain what biohacking is and uh, how? Uh, we all know we're all different, so there's probably no easy way to explain how to hack your own body, but can you kind of give us some guidelines, first of all, what it is and how to make it work for you, for each person? Sure. So for my own case, I mean, I've biohacked my epilepsy, and, and really what I mean by biohacking is setting a goal and... Um, having specific markers that you are measuring on a regular basis and tweaking things in order to achieve optimal results. So for me, it's very, very important to measure. I really believe that if you measure what matters, then you have the ability to optimize everything, your nutrition, your performance, the whole nine yards. So for me, um, making sure that I measure and weigh everything has allowed me to biohack my epilepsy. I know, for example, and, and this sort of goes back to what we we're talking about between the difference of therapeutic keto and sort of everyday keto. Those of us in therapeutic ketogenic diets tend to measure everything. And we measure our, our blood ketones, we measure our blood glucose daily, if not multiple times a day. And we aim to achieve a certain ratio. And that ratio is gonna be individual to each person but my ratio, for example, I do best neurologically at a glucose ketone index of about two or below. And that means basically that my ketones are in the range of one and a half to three, and my blood sugar is in the range of 3.5 to 4.5. And that is what works for me. When I get outside of those ranges, I begin to not feel ideal. So... One of the other things that, you know, I, now that I've hacked my seizures and I know what I need for that, my next step is really hacking the lipedema. And I have a DEXA scan done every year, so I know exactly what my bone density is, what my body fat is, what my lean muscle mass is, uh, very accurately. And so I'm able to measure that and then tweak my diet and see what happens when I have my next DEXA scan. And in between the DEXA scans, I have what's called an in-body, which is a, a form of bioimpedance. It's not quite as accurate as the DEXA, but it tells me if I'm moving in the right direction, basically. So one of the things I decided to do for the month of November was um, put on a continuous glucose monitor. And I actually have it here if I can show you what they look like. It's this little, this little sensor Mm -hmm. that is an implant. Um, okay. My husband called me a cyborg for a month, but it's an implant <laughs> that goes in the back of your arm. And it allows you to quite literally continuously monitor your glucose. So you can see exactly how you respond to specific foods, to food timing, to food amount, and, and what happens to your blood sugar during that period of time. So I know because of how I eat that I have very like, I have a pretty narrow band. I have a pretty flat line for my glucose monitor. But what I wanted to see is how low I could drive down my glucose because I wanted to drive down my insulin to a crazy low level so that I could access 
my lipedema fat, the fat on my thighs. Hmm. And, and I was really successful. I, I, um, in the month of November, I lost 14 pounds. I lost 24 centimeters, including three centimeters off my thighs, which is like never happens. Hmm. And, uh, and I lost about 3% body fat. And that was, that was really good. But what allowed me to do it was looking at that glucose monitor and figuring out my, my meal timing in particular and what I was eating. And for that month, I was only eating really good ribeye steak and lard. And that's it. Yeah. So um, going back to keeping things simple, because you are a scientist and you're obviously highly focused on your particular condition, but most people out there, one, don't have the knowledge, two, don't have the time, and three, are too lazy to go through all these complicated measuring, weighing everything. Mm -hmm. um, what do you recommend for people like that? Do you recommend they go to specialists? But the problem with that is, and, and that's been my experience, is that even if you go to a nutritionist, like me, for example, most people, once they get home, they don't either follow your instructions, they don't take the time to take care of themselves, they don't think that, they don't necessarily believe what you're saying because even though they hired you and paid for, it's like, oh, you know, whatever, you know, uh, I've lived so far, so, so that's the hard part when you get to, not, not everyone is highly focused as, you know, Mark and I and you and, and other people in, uh, with specific condition. There's no, and this is probably why pill is so, so easy for most people to take instead of going through all mm -hmm. this complicated uh, um, situation. Is there a way somewhere in the middle where people can still take care of themselves without being uh, obsessive about it? Absolutely, absolutely. And the only people who really need to be obsessive about it are people who are needing this for therapeutic applications. Because if you're not obsessive about it, you're not going to know what works and you're not going to know how to fix stuff if it's broken. So really, again, it comes down to choice. Everybody has a choice. You have a choice between medication and you have a choice between diet. And, and I'm under no illusion that overnight everybody is going to suddenly want to choose diet because that's not going to happen. But it would be great if they knew it was an option and then they could choose that if they felt the side effects of their medication were now impairing their quality of life. So in terms of the vast majority of people, yes, it can be so simple. Choose a protein, choose a green leafy vegetable, add fat. <laughs> it's that easy. It mm. really is. So it, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Eat real food, only eat the real food that is good for you. If it's got a barcode on it, it's probably not good for you. If you can't hunt it or gather it or pick it, it's probably not good for you. And so it really comes down to, you know, good, better, best. Right? You, you mean, can, you, mean you, can have, you, cannot, you cannot pick uh, potato chips from the wild? No, you can't. Highly processed. You've got to be pretty quick to catch them, though. <laughs> so, well, you know, that's the easy part. But, I mean, I no, say it's easy. It's not easy to get over sugar it's, addiction. It's, it's, not, it's uh, not easy to get over illness. What you, what you just said was 
very clear and very simple. The problem with that is that a lot of people are going to say, but that's boring. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It is. So, so it's boring. You know, guess what? I can sit on an airplane and not be uncomfortable anymore. And I can play Frisbee that I couldn't play before. And I don't have fibromyalgia before. And I don't require right. $1,600 of medication a month. What, what's define easy, define boring. Right. It's so, not boring. Salmon so, covered in butter and asparagus. That's not boring. We need to expand <laughs> the explanation of meat can be any protein. Yeah. It, I mean, it a lot be. of people, a lot of people, meat is a steak. Okay. Meat could be mm -hmm. fish. It can be, you know, any other animal than, yeah. than uh, red meat. Um, right. So elk. protein, eggs, you know, uh, fish, mm -hmm. lots of fish. Greens can be any kind of greens. Does, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people think kale or salads, right? Because that's, yeah. that's also an issue is the lack of knowledge in food, mm -hmm. real mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's this huge fat with kale and now people are sick of kale. So they're moving on to whatever the next vegetable is, right? Um, mm -hmm. We need to expand our food horizon and and understand that protein, there's hundreds of choices of protein. There's hundreds of choices of vegetables, green vegetables, and, you know, and, and choice, many choices in fat, not hundreds, but many mm. choices. So, and any combinations of that, you know, when, uh, when I wrote my paleo book, a lot of people, paleo French cuisine, right? People think, mm -hmm. what? French cuisine, paleo? It's like, it's not that difficult, really. Most, if you know what you're looking for, mm -hmm. most French stews are paleo. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of the Mediterranean dishes are paleo because they use a lot of fresh vegetables. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you know what you're looking for, then it's easy to make it work. But if you don't have that knowledge uh, in the food world, which I have because I'm a chef and or as a nutritionist, then it gets things get complicated because people have very, very narrow point of views on what food is. So um, what you said is very accurate and very simple, but we need to expand it to any kind of protein, any kind of mm -hmm. uh, vegetables and only healthy fats. And there's, there's many different kinds. So that gives people a, more of a sense of, oh, okay, now I, I, you know, I have more choices. Because Absolutely. people get bored, you know. You can't mm -hmm. eat steaks every day of your life and, and with a salad on the side or kale. So um, let's see. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I, I picked on the term on your website, which I do not understand. What is CGM? Oh, the CGM is this. This is a continuous glucose monitor. And, oh. and I honestly think everybody, everybody should have it. I think it's going to revolutionize healthcare if people are able to wear this and see the impact that it has on their blood sugar when, when they're eating anything. So I think the people who are the hardest to sort of switch on to a nutritional approach to, to their dietary wellness would actually be the ones who 
would be more likely to, in, in my theory at any rate, would be more likely to, to perhaps embrace that if they could see the harm that was happening in real time. Because that's really the problem, isn't it? You can eat this way for 30 years before you develop metabolic syndrome. You can, right. you know, you can have hyper, uh, hyperinsulinemia for many decades before you start getting the standard sort of chronic diseases that come with it. And, and then it's often too late. You can reverse, you know, you can reverse type 2 diabetes for many people, but there's a lot of damage that's been done by the time these things start to actually become recognized as, as a, a chronic medical condition. So if people could wear this for a month and, and, and look at it in real time, scan themselves with their phone right after they ate out at Burger King or whatever, they would see what was happening and they, they might believe at that point. The problem is right now, it's very, very hard for people to be able to link what they're eating today with what their health is going to be like in 30 years. You know, people yeah, say yeah. that's 30 years from now. So uh, this thing you implant in your body does communicate with your cell phone. There's an app that will mm -hmm. tell you. Yeah. Okay. okay, we need to explain those kind of things because... Mm -hmm. Using terms and um, in scientific terms is complicated for most people to understand. So to make it simpler to understand, it's a thingy you put in your in your body wherever it's supposed to go, and then it communicates your cell phone, which typically everybody carries nowadays, and you have an immediate result on your screen that tells you the effect of the food you just had on your blood sugar. Absolutely which is ideally for uh, diabetes, pre-diabetes, and all, you know, all sorts of... Uh, so I'll give you an example. I have, um, I have, I think you might be able to see that on the, the screen. Yep. Mm -hmm. So there's December yes. the 2nd, and I okay. programmed this to have a very narrow band. And you can okay. see that my blood sugar ran below that band so for the vast majority. And up in the top, it, to it tells you that... Um, my average blood sugar was 3.6, which uh, you guys would have to convert for the U.S. Uh, right. because we do millimolars per liter, but you know that's that's under 70 for sure. Um, and and so it's really nice that yes, you you can scan that, you can print reports, you can see what your blood sugar is over 24 hours, how long you're, how often you're in the target, how quickly you respond to you know a high carbohydrate meal, for example. You can also test carbohydrates to see what you're most sensitive to. So it's, that, it's an extremely does, does versatile that, tool. Does that add, uh, add the option to switch from uh, metric to... It does, from yeah. American? Okay, okay. Yeah, we need to explain those kind of things. Mm. So it makes mm -hmm. it easy for people to say, oh, that's great, I want, I want one of those. Uh, personally, I'm not too excited about implanting anything in my body that <laughs> it sits on the outside Alan it's just it just sits bit. on the outside it, it, when you're putting it on it looks like it might be scary but it actually doesn't you don't feel a thing and, so the big and it, it's like that. not bad <laughs> 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 it does kind of look big in, in this thing I, I do admit it did I was a bit right. like ah, but it, it, it was fine it didn't hurt and it doesn't hurt and it stays on for two weeks so you so can collect this... two weeks of data per uh, you know, per sensor. Okay. Uh, oh, so you have to change it? Replace yes, it? you do. 
Mm-hmm. If oh. you want to do it. So this is usually for people who uh, require insulin because they, they're either um, type 1 diabetics or, or very sick type 2 diabetics. And so it allows them to monitor their glucose in real time and, and make sure that they can prevent significant lows or significant highs. Okay. And so it's uh, some, some people's insurance will cover it and sometimes they won't. In Canada, unfortunately, mine doesn't because I don't use insulin. If I used insulin, I would have been able to have it covered. Mm. So out of curiosity, what would um, a thingy like this cost? Uh, notice I so, use a very technical term, a thingy. <laughs> thingy. <laughs> there are a couple of different thingies on the market, uh, but this one is... <laughs> is uh, definitely the the least expensive. Um, it's by Abbott Labs, and it's called the Freestyle Libre. And mm. you can get uh, the scanner, the reader, because it does come with its own little reader. Um, you can get the reader plus two of these sensors for about $200, I think. It might be a little less in the U.S. It was. A, it cost me about 250 Canadian, so it might be about 170 in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that would allow you to do a month-long experiment. And right. once you've once you've scanned it with the reader, which is about the size of my palm, then you can also use the app. So if you've got a smartphone, you can use your phone to scan, and you can use the reader as well. And then once the uh, once you no longer are using the CGM, the reader, you can just stick the little blood sticks in and you can use it as an independent, um, you know, blood glucose monitor. Okay. So once you've got that, that costs that the, the reader by itself, I think costs about $45, but it does come in a kit. Okay, so um, now we picked up from earlier that you also uh, do presentation. Uh, so you public speaker. Uh, do you have any upcoming events you, you you plan to speak? I do. I have a couple, actually. Um, I do local talks on a regular basis here in Ottawa, uh, but I'm also speaking on the low-carb cruise at the end of May, beginning of June, um, and that'll be fun because I'll get to be speaking somewhere warm, and then I'm thrilled to be coming back to Texas in mm-hmm. June uh, to speak at KetoCon again, and uh, that'll be the second time for me, and I, I love that conference. It's such a, such a fantastic vibe, and there's just so, so much going on at that conference. I'm really excited to be back there again. Would you let me know when you come to Austin? Because I live in Austin. Oh, absolutely. Will you cook for me? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I had to ask. <laughs> I'm, I'm retired. I'm retired. I am. I'm off duty. Uh, yeah, I don't cook. Uh, I don't know if that gives you an excuse. I think you know, once yeah. a chef, always a chef. I like, come on. That's true, uh, but, but I will. I'll be back at KetoCon at the end of June, and uh, my talk is going to be on respecting bio individuality when choosing your low carb path. But I know the good restaurants I can take you to. Oh, that sounds lovely. Well, you know, we we do good barbecue down here. I know you do. My friend Jade lives in Texas, and she has yes. taken me for some pretty fine barbecue. I must say I can't well, get anything like that in Ottawa. Well, she lives in Austin, too. So um, mm. um, that would be fun if you, when you come down, uh, let me know, and you and Jade and I and a few other people can get together and 
and just go to eat some good barbecue and without the sides. Sounds lovely. Definitely. Nope, no, pota- yeah, no, no potato salads. No potato <laughs> oh, no, salads. Just Topo Chico. That's all. Topo Chico from, from Texas. <laughs> that's right. Um, Mark? It's been really interesting stuff. So, I mean, I've been listening more than taking notes, but bear with me. Um, you mentioned something like 25%, um, I think it was, of people respond to uh, the Atkins diet for treating uh, epilepsy. Um, mm-hmm. But you also said that, it's, it, in essence, it's what works for you. Are there any other diets that you um, would suggest people try if you know, they don't like any of the ones we've been talking about? Well, I think if you're talking about epilepsy, um, it's actually 50% respond to a, a low-carb, high-healthy-fat approach. Right. Um, about 25% become seizure-free. Okay. So at the moment, there are a number of different sort of iterations of a ketogenic diet that are, are in play, and some people respond better to others. So, for example, uh, the modified Atkins diet allows for um, a little bit more protein, Mm -hmm. still very low carb and still very high fat. Then you can have what they call an MCT diet, which has quite a lot of medium chain triglyceride as as oil, uh, but it allows you to have a higher carbohydrate intake if you are having higher MCT intake. And that can be quite hard on the gut, but Mm -hmm. for some teenagers, for example, it allows them to be able to eat French fries every once in a while or, you know, do things that other teenagers are doing if they have that added MCT. So it can allow for a little bit more flexibility. The other thing that is uh, that is out there in the documentation is something called the LEGIT diet, L-G-I-T, which stands for low glycemic index diet. And that is uh, really, you can pretty much eat anything as long as it has got, um, you know, uh, um, a glycemic index of of under a specific percentage. Mm -hmm. And so, again, that allows for a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more um, flexibility within the sort of salad choices, for example. Uh, But it's, you know, they're all basically doing the same thing. They are causing you to be in a state of ketosis, which is what helps with seizures. What a lot of people find is that, especially those over the age of two, if they they can start at a very, very, very high level of fat, and then they can bring it back little by little to sort of see when they hit their threshold. And, And in a way, that's exactly what I did, but I just did it in a slightly different way because I was measuring my blood ketones and my blood glucose. I could find what my glucose ketone index was that worked for me. But what works for me may not work for the next person. And so it's really important that people have a starting point. And I tend to encourage people to start by being as as sort of rigid as you can and then expand. Expand until you don't feel good, as opposed to the other option, which would be to start modestly and work up until you find that you have found your seizure threshold. Mm. With seizures, it tends to work better the other way, (laughs) you know, being, being a little bit more strict and then, and then loosening up. And for a lot of people, once they've been doing this for two to three years, there is good research that shows that you can actually come off a ketogenic diet and still maintain seizure freedom, especially when we're talking about kids. 
Um, I would encourage people, if they were going to try to come off a ketogenic diet, to move on to a paleo diet or to move on to something that is going to be low-carb, healthy fat for the rest of your life, but not necessarily in a state of ketosis. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you also mentioned that uh, as a byproduct of you following the keto diet, you dealt with your fibromyalgia. Now, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who suffer with that. Would you like to just mention that briefly? Absolutely. I saw a rheumatologist for about 12 years. Um, and I'll never forget the first time I saw him. He sat me down on his little table and he went through, you know, pressure points on my body. And when he hit the ones on my hips, I screamed jumped off the bed and just started crying. I couldn't stop crying because he had hurt me so badly. I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't lie on one side or the other for more than 15 minutes because the pain was too much. The mm. cat couldn't sit on my lap because the pain was too much. And I lived on painkillers and on sleeping pills. And, and I don't like taking medication, but I had to in order to function. And one of the things that was really very magical about this, this wonderful uh, experience I had is that all of my markers of inflammation, my C-reactive protein, all of, the, all of the markers that were being tested by my rheumatologist just plummeted within mm. a month of being on this, this diet. And I, I don't take any pain medication anymore. I mean, I'm almost 50 and I have an arthritic knee. So every once in a while, I'll take an Advil. But it's extremely rare these days that I, that I require any medication for pain. And of course, having lost the weight meant that the arthritis in my knee wasn't as much of a problem because, you know, for every 10 pounds you lose, you take 40 pounds of pressure off your joints. Yeah. And that's pretty significant when you've lost 100 pounds. It is, yes, yeah. Yes, that, that's a very significant when you've lost 100 pounds. <laughs> that's like two tons. It's a lot. Yeah, I still have arthritis, though, but just don't have to medicate for it anymore. You don't feel it as much, which is basically the name of the game. And, and I guess arthritis being sort of a, a, an inflammatory type of um, mm -hmm. condition, you know, dealing with the inflammatory t foods or getting rid of the inflammatory foods, mm -hmm. knocks it on the head as well. So you've got a double whammy Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Which is excellent. Um, one thing you did mention, you know, in keeping it simple, you know, so one meat, one leafy green, uh, and something else that people can eat. Um, yes, right. Um, something that's becoming more and more popular now is juicing. And of course, juicing is a very great way of getting a vast quantity of nutrients out of greens um, in a very convenient and uh, concentrated way. Have you looked at that in your research? I have, and I went through a phase of juicing, actually, um, not while I was on a ketogenic diet, because that would just up the carbs way too much for me. Mm. The other thing to remember is that things like kale, which, of course, are, are, are very fatty, Ellen, there's your <laughs> um, those, those are also excellent at leaching heavy metals out of the ground. Absolutely mm. excellent. So if you're juicing three pounds of kale a day, you have to ask yourself, is this coming from an absolutely pristine source where there is no toxins in that ground? Because otherwise, you could actually be increasing your, low, your toxic burden quite significantly. Mm. The other piece, of course, is that depending on how you're juicing, often people are missing the fiber from those plants. Mm. 
and and I just tend to be a believer in in ingesting it the way it's meant for us to be ingested. But you mm-hmm. know that said, um, I I do every once in a while have a wheatgrass shot. Every once in a while, but I just you know uh, <laughs> I try really hard. Yeah, I I just the, the older I get, honestly, the more I'm just moving to to just eating as holistically as I can, and uh, I I don't necessarily think that there are. Um, uh, any negatives to juicing, except maybe if you're living at booster juice, because, you know, one of those booster juices have a thousand calories in it and about mm. 90 grams of carbohydrate, because of course, a lot of it is fruit. And, and I mm. think that um, in an effort to be healthier, people are always saying we need more fruit. And I think we actually don't. I think we need less fruit. I think we need better fruit. And I think we need seasonal fruit. But I don't actually think we need more of it. I think we need significantly less of it. Mm-hmm. And I know myself, I, I miss fruit because that's, again, something that pushes me over my carb limit. But I do, I absolutely do indulge in a third of a cup of blueberries in blueberry season and a third of a cup of strawberries in strawberry season. But I don't eat them in the middle of January. <laughs> that's probably very sensible. You don't know what <laughs> I have to do in order to get them to you looking you know, rosy red and that type Well, of- if I were going to, I would only eat something that was frozen because that would actually probably be nutritionally more dense than, than whatever was shipped to me from wherever. Yeah, you're probably right there. Now, you did mention earlier that you've got an open mind. And um, one of the things that I have seen uh, firsthand, actually, um, people using and dealing very well with epilepsy is CBD oil. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? I have I have friends who do very very well on CBD oil. I have to admit it's an area where I don't have a lot of um, a lot of expertise, but I do know that I mean we have cannabinoid receptors, so mm. that must mean <laughs> that at some point in our in our human development that that was an important thing for us to be ingesting. Mm. And I know that for you know for depression and for anxiety and for a number of other things, CBD can be brilliant. And of course, it's just been legalized in Canada now, so you can actually phone in and order. Uh, and I know my my kids have actually, um, you know, have have um, have tried it for anxiety. And my eldest son said it didn't help him; it actually made him feel worse. And uh, my younger son said that it does help with sleep. Uh, both of them are are highly highly academic and and extremely you know functional adults, but they do find that. Um, stress of work and anxiety has been problematic, so they both tried it out, but had very different results. So I think uh, um, I know that there are some people. I believe Dr. Nasha Williams, if you're familiar with her, um, her husband, I believe, is a real expert in this, and and would probably be a great person to to talk to. Yeah, excellent, excellent. No, I just wanted to ask because yeah, I've seen firsthand uh, you know, there was a, a chap um, in a town. Uh, near where my father lives, who was having something like 12 or 15 seizures a day. And he started using CBD oil and he had, he went down from to one seizure a day and now it's like mm. one every two weeks or something like that. It's it brilliant. Complete relief like you've got with diet, but it's certainly given him his life back. So you know, it's one of those things, if it works, why not? Absolutely. And I know recently in the UK, it has become legalized. I have a friend there who... Um, was having many, 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 many seizures a day. And the same thing, she's actually been hospitalized at the moment. And, and in hospital, they're giving her CBD and working very well for her. 
Excellent. One, one thing I wanted to, um, I, I just realized we address what makes, what decreases uh, seizures, but hmm. taking the other side of the, the equation, what would increase the chance of uh, seizures if you're not knowledgeable about it? So if you, without um, knowing what you're doing, is there certain food or certain products that would actually increase the chances of having uh, seizures? With CBD oil, you mean? No, 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 no just food. In general. Oh, like, absolutely. And in fact, many people who have been on anti-epileptic medications for large parts of their lives actually develop food sensitivities. Unfortunately, some of them are to highly... Um, highly used foods within ketogenic diets, such as coconut oil and avocado, um, and they can actually increase their seizures. And you know, this is one of the reasons I feel very passionate about being sort of scientific in an approach if you're going to try to do this, because if you are looking at your food logs and you can see that eating avocado then is followed by multiple seizures, then try ditching the avocado. And, and certainly, you know, I, I, have, I have colleagues and friends who, are, who I've interviewed who have had great success, but if they had quit in the first couple of weeks when they were doing everything right, quote unquote, eating avocado every day and everything cooked in coconut oil, then they never would have realized that in fact it was the coconut oil and the avocado that were the problem. And mm. as soon as that was removed, they became seizure-free. So anti-epileptic medications can have some fairly significant side effects, and one of them is an increase in food sensitivity. So um, I would always encourage somebody who's going to try a, this dietary approach, if you have epilepsy, to make sure that your doctor is on board. I realize that not everybody has access to, you know, a nutritionist who understands ketogenic diets and, and healthy, what a healthy ketogenic diet looks like. Um, but at the very least, you should be having some physician monitoring and basic blood work being done. And some people do not tolerate very high fat diets well. There, there's a small number, but there, there are some people who absolutely should not be on a ketogenic diet. And, mm -hmm. and that should be made very clear. Most of those people will have genetic disorders that have been diagnosed early in childhood, and they'll know that keto is not for them. You know, but there are some other things, porphyria um, being one of them, it's a blood disorder, um, that, you know, those people shouldn't be. And that's why I do think it's important if you're looking at doing this therapeutically, that you try and get a physician on board who can at the very least do your baseline blood work, follow you up in three months, and troubleshoot with you in the event mm -hmm. that you have side effects that are not expected or that, um, you know, you're not having the success you're hoping for. Excellent, excellent. Now, now, talking of people who are expert in uh, using diet for uh, dealing with epilepsy, where can people get hold of you, for instance? Well, they can get a hold of me at my website, which is ketoalldayeveryday.com, or by Gmail, same, same name, ketoalldayeveryday at Gmail. I'm also on Instagram at keto.for, spelled out, F-O-R, dot life. And um, on Twitter and also on Instagram as Keto All Day Every Day. I try and keep my sort of therapeutic side to the Keto All Day Every Day. And Keto Dot for Life is, that's me every day. That's my life. That's what I'm eating. That's what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll have pictures of me trying to lift up heavy things on that site. But I may not have that on my Keto All Day Every Day site. 
I do have another question, um, you know, just uh, kind of a stream of consciousness kind of thing. Um, would you say that the keto diet uh, would not be recommended for people with uh, gallbladder issues? No, I would not say that. And I would not say that because I don't have a gallbladder. <laughs> so I can say that not having had a gallbladder has not been an impediment to me. I, I don't even take supplemental ox bile most of the time. Sometimes I will just for fun, but I, I don't actually have an issue. I would say that people who have a history of gallstone attacks make sure that they do have excellent nutritional guidance around their ketogenic diet. And, you know, when we're talking about ketogenic diets, one of the things everybody's always talking about is how much fat. So in the weight loss communities, it's always, do I eat the fat on my plate or the fat on my body? I hear it all the time. And the bottom line is that it absolutely depends on the individual. And that, in fact, is one of the things that my talk is going to be centering on. Because if you are a postmenopausal woman, you need way more fat than if you are a 30-year-old guy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just, that's, basic biology but a lot of people don't realize that that hormonal impacts that epigenetic impacts that environmental impacts um, are going to play a role in how much fat is the right amount of fat for you and when it comes to gallbladder issues it's true those people may be eating on the lower end of a high healthy fat diet defined as what it depends on on who you're talking to again but probably closer to the 65% or 70% uh, as opposed to a 90%, which is where I usually hang out. Right, because my understanding is typically doctors, the first thing they tell you after uh, gallbladder surgery is that no fat, right? Mm -hmm. so Not that, been my problem. And most okay. people I know who've had their gallbladders out, if they do uh, occasionally have a little bit of difficulty starting up, they can supplement with ox bile and that can be, um, that can help. But most people really don't have an issue as long as their diet is, is healthy and balanced appropriately. And they're not living on MCT oil because sometimes that can be quite hard on the gut. Right, okay. Good, good. Super job. Uh, any more questions, Mark? No, no, I've asked as many as I could write down because I was just listening. It's one of those subjects that, uh, you know, it's just thoroughly interesting to, and. Obviously, Julian's a thoroughly interesting person to listen to as well. Right. So I guess it's time for my world-famous uh, cruising. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Thank you again, Julian, for being on the Local Paleo Show. And as we say in Texas, have votre santé, y'all. <laughs> Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. I think we're going to have you back at some point. Isn't it? I would love that. I would love that.